Um, if you guys have Bibles with you, uh, we'll be in Acts, mainly chapter 22 today. We're continuing our series in Acts. We're getting to the back a little bit. Some of you doubted me, but we're getting there. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, we will have the text on the screen. So if, if, you, if you need to move into more advantageous uh, position to see the screen, um, you feel free to do that. I want to, uh, a couple disclaimers here is one, this might be a couple minutes longer than I usually preach, and also, this is a very ambitious sermon, so this could just crash and burn, or it could be great, uh, but that's, that's true nearly every week. So let's pray before we begin. All right, Father God, I pray right now for your help as we open your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit would give me assistance in being clear so that I could say what the message of your word is and that uh, your people would benefit from it and be built up. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I've always said that uh, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd have to be a nihilist, which is probably why I like Seinfeld. Um, and I, if, yeah, we all know Seinfeld. It's on Netflix these days. Even my kids watch it, not my little kids, but my older kids, and it's great. Rewatching Seinfeld, it refreshes all of that. But if you guys don't know, Seinfeld is famously a nihilistic show. It is a self-described show about nothing. Um, I was listening to a program with Larry David, the creator. He said they had a motto, no one learns, no one hugs. Right? And, and that's the whole, when you watch the show Seinfeld, it, it, it is clear that there's a worldview operating underneath it, that this is all pointless. And so the characters, there's no trajectory, none of them ever change, none of them ever grow, none of them ever actually accomplish anything. They just obsess over minutiae, you know, like, like, oh, should I marry this person? They eat their corn, you know, like, like corn kernel by corn kernel with a fork. I don't know if I could handle that, right? And that's a whole episode. They're, they're wandering around, lost in a parking garage. That's an episode. It, it reflects this whole idea that is all over our culture that really what the world is and what your life is is a story about nothing, Famously, Shakespeare, you know, said, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. In the same vein, Drake said, YOLO. <laughs> That's the same idea, right? You're here for a little bit, then you hit oblivion. So you only live once, have fun while you can. That reflects, actually, there's a, I know I'm going all over the place here, but there's, there's an ancient Greek headstone. You know what it said on it? It said, I wasn't, then I was, now I'm not. That you're just this brief blip. Or like the musical Rent, which I hate. They keep on saying, no day but today. That reflects a very nihilistic worldview. E even the scientific community gives us a lot of this. I was watching a program with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and, and he was you know, talking about, well, if you look at the billions and billions of years in the history of the planet, and if you were to, if you were to put that like, like patterned like, like a week, and, and then you were to take all of human history and how long that lasts by comparison, it's a split second on Sunday kind of saying, it just doesn't matter. It's about nothing. Yeah, we're obsessing. 
We're, we're really interested in the things that are going on, but actually humanity and human beings' lives are stories about nothing. Now, I can hear my well-meaning humanist friend who may be listening to this saying, well, you know, but life has whatever meaning you give it. Right? That, that's kind of the popular solution to this age-old problem. Life, life is whatever, it means whatever you want it to. It has whatever purpose you give it. That's just another way of saying there isn't one. It's like, yeah, just make one up. Who cares? There isn't one, so you can invent it. Right? You guys see that? that? That is not a solution to this problem. And for a lot of us, we just try and keep busy and ignore this particular question. What if my life is a story about nothing? I'll just have the best experiences possible before it's over. And that is the plan we're executing many of us right now. Now, I'm a pastor, so you're gonna, you suspect rightly that I'm going to say God has something to do with the solution. But think of this. The existence of God in and of itself is not an answer to this. In fact, there, are, there is some versions of Christian theology that say, yeah, you're kind of just marking time till heaven. Right? That, that this life actually is about nothing. It's pointless. It's a, it's a throwaway. It's a warm-up at best. Uh, for eternal life. Is anyone encouraged so far? I hope not. Um, but I actually believe, and I hope to communicate to you guys from this text today, that there's a reason to believe that our story, our story, your story, the everyday parts of your story, the battles that you get up and fight every day, the suffering that you've gone through, the, the triumphs that you've achieved, the things you've overcome, the obstacles you've faced, they actually all matter. They actually all mean something. There's a reason to believe that your story matters. Now, in order to, to, to get there, the first thing we have to do is look at the entire Bible at once. So here we go, page one. I'm kidding. We're not kidding. No, in all seriousness, we, we, we focus in a lot of the time, rightly so, on, on you know, single verses. And, but, but do we ever step back and look at the Bible as an entirety? What is it? Well, it's, it's God's word. Okay. What's God saying in his word? Well, like, like it's full of beliefs. It tells us what to believe. It's true. But that's kind of like saying Hamilton's a rap record, you know? It's like, there's a lot of rap in Hamilton, but it's the story of Alexander Hamilton, told through raps. When, when we look, ask the question, what is the Bible as an entirety? It is God's story of redemption. For some of you, you're like, old news. For, other, for, others, uh, for others of you, you're like, wait, what? If we look at the Bible cover to cover, it tells a single story. It begins with creation. That's the first two chapters of the Bible is that God makes all things and he puts human beings in the midst of creation. And when we look at creation, we see God says it's good. That human beings have direct fellowship with God, they're in right relationship with one another, and that there is meaningful work for them to do. That's what we see in the first two chapters. That's creation. Then in the third chapter, we have what's called the fall, when our first parents rebel against God, and that harmony, that goodness of creation is shattered, is splintered. 
What does God say when he pronounces the, the consequences of rebellion? He tells them, you have to leave here. Fellowship with God is broken. He tells the man and woman, you're going to have strife between the two of you instead of harmony. He tells them that the work of your hands is now cursed and that they're doomed to die. The rest of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Revelation chapter 20, that's the end of the Bible, is the story of redemption. What's going on as you're reading about Israel, as you're reading about the patriarchs, as you're reading about Moses, the prophets, and the rest of it, is the coming redemption in Jesus, who is the centerpiece of God's redemptive story. And guess what happens in the last two chapters of the Bible? The plan works. It's, it's, it's completion. We see the, the city of God. If you, if you look at, at the book of Revelation, the last two chapters, the city of God comes down. And it says, God is now with man, right? That fellowship is restored. You know what else pops up? The Garden of Eden pops up inside of that city. It's a very intentional wrapping up of the story of redemption. There's a little painting that I don't like, but it might help you who are those of you who are visual. Bring it up. Take your time. It's, it's totally cool. There we go. Okay, so creation, right? Fall, redemption, completion. That is the storyline of the Bible. That is the grand narrative of what's going on. Some of you have quizzical looks on your faces, but yes, yeah, the, 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 you may not have realized that, hey, how does this all tie together? And some of you just don't like the painting, and that's fine. But the main point is, when we ask, what is communicated to us in the Bible? It's this. It's telling us the story of God's redemption. That the basic premise of nihilism, that everything is from nothing and going to nothing, is untrue. That every, instead, that all comes from God and is going to be restored, redeemed. God has a story of redemption. Now, some of you, when you hear me say story, are thinking fairy tale, right? That story means it's untrue, but that, that's, that's not, like, we've heard of true stories. Like, we know these exist. You can go get a, a book that tells the story of, you know, George Washington, and it's, it's true, right? But the question is, is, okay, God has a story of redemption. Why does that make my story matter? How does that make the day-to-day -day trials, struggles, and triumphs of my life actually matter. Well, let's get into Acts chapter 22. I'm actually going to summarize what happens in, in chapter 21. Um, but uh, basically what happens is Paul gets to Jerusalem. He, he ends his third missionary journey, and he's got a problem because he's, it's being spread among the Jews that Paul is preaching, has been out there preaching against uh, following Moses and the temple, and this is a big no-no in Jewish society. So when he goes to the temple, a, a mob is whipped up against him and start beating him. And the Roman garrison, you know, seeing a disturbance, comes down and puts a stop to it. And as Paul is being taken into, into Roman custody, he says, wait a second, can I address the crowd? And this is what he has to say in chapter 22, verse 1. It says, When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became quiet. 
Okay, so can, can, like Paul was just being beaten by this crowd. He's being arrested, and he has one thing to say. What is he going to say? He said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoner to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Okay, so Paul has one chance to address this crowd. Partly it's a defense, and partly he wants to share the gospel. He wants to share the story of redemption with them. What does he do? He tells his own story. That's his explanation of the gospel in this situation. Now, we need to actually tie this together with the rest of the book of Acts. Because for those of you who have been here or are familiar with the book of Acts, you're like, oh, they tell that same story in chapter 9. The exact same story about Paul being a persecutor of the church, and on his way, he encounters Christ, and then he becomes on Christ's side, right? So what if I told you that in another chapter, he's going to tell the same story again? It's almost like the writer of this book of Acts is making a point, isn't it? It's like if you went and saw Neil Diamond, and fourth song into the set, he starts playing Sweet Caroline. Like, okay, cool, Sweet Caroline. I knew this was coming. And then the 10th song of the set, he plays Sweet Caroline. And then for the 13th song of the set, he again plays Sweet Caroline. You'd say, hang on a second. Neil isn't getting senile. He's making a point. He wants us to hear Sweet Caroline again. There's something going on, right? Why would Luke? Did he just have extra papyrus? No, it's because this, this or vellum or whatever they were writing on at that point, I'm not sure. It's because this story of Paul is now part of the story of redemption. When Paul speaks his story, he speaks the gospel. He speaks the story of redemption. And, and you notice he does not leave out the most shameful part of his story, the fact that he was a persecutor of God's people. That's part of the story, except that now that he's redeemed, the meaning of his past is transformed, isn't it? When we join our story to God's story, the meaning of our past is transformed. In his book, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson, you should all read this book, it's great. Brian Stevenson was, was speaking. He's a civil rights attorney, human rights attorney, rather. 
And uh, he was explaining to this, this crowd in a church that, uh, about how he was, uh, he was trying to exonerate wrongly convicted people on death row. And, um, and, uh, and there was a guy in the back, older African-American gentleman wearing a suit in a wheelchair. And, um, and he was sitting there just staring daggers at Brian Stevens throughout his whole speech. And the, the speech ends, and everybody clears out. And this guy had waited, and he came up to Brian Stevens and rolled up, and he stared at him. He says, do you know what you're doing? And Brian Stevenson was like, I stopped smiling, and I just said, I think so, sir. <laughs> and he said, you're beating the drum of justice. You've got to beat the drum of justice. And then he, he said, you see this, this mark on my ear right here? He says, yeah. He says, I got that in Greene County, Alabama, trying to register to vote in 64. And then he showed him a mark on the top of his head. You see this? So I got this demanding civil rights in Mississippi. And then he showed him this big, dark spot at the base of his skull. He says, you see that? I got that after the Children's Crusade in Birmingham. He says, you know, people think that these are my bruises, cuts, and scars. But these aren't my bruises, cuts, and scars. These are my medals of honor. If you were to see what had happened to that guy, it's a beating. But because of the story he was part of, it changed the meaning of that. For him, these were medals of honor. When your story becomes part of God's story of redemption, it transforms the meaning of our past. So many of us are struggling with things that happened in our past. Things that were done to us, things that we did to others. Whether that's abuse, whether there is a great deal of failure in your life, if you've endured suffering, if you are ashamed of parts of your past, if your life is a story about nothing, then all of that is for nothing. Facing the past is for nothing. Making sense of the past is an illusion. You know, I've been, uh, I'm reading some, some books for um, classes I'm taking, and these neuroscientists, they hear on NPR and stuff like that, talk about how we are creatures that need to make meaning. And they talk about this as an evolutionary response, right? Like, like, there is no meaning, but we have to create it. We have to make sense of our story. I agree that we need it to survive, but I actually think that it's because the world has meaning to it, and God made us to seek that meaning. And when we join our story to God's story, those past events take on a whole new meaning. They are, they are now part of your story of redemption, and they are part of God's story of redemption. When you tell your story of redemption, you are telling God's story of redemption. That's a complete change to, to just looking in bewilderment at what's happened to you in the past and what you've done in the past. But, you know, whenever we talk about, like, grand purpose, there's a problem. And that problem is just the mundane nature of the present, you know? Um, in his book, Practicing the Presence of God, uh, there's a guy named Brother Lawrence who was a monk, and he had a job at the monastery that just drove him nuts. He was the cook, 
And so he would talk about like cooking and cleaning dishes as being an interruption to what he really wanted to do, to commune with God, to like, to like be a monk, like his whole vision of being a monk. is like, I didn't think I was going to wash dishes, <laughs> right? He's like, how is this, you know, going deeper with God? How is this part of this spiritually significant life? You know, it's funny, like, people who follow my wife on Instagram, you know, will, will tell me, oh, your life looks so full. We have five kids. It is very full. It's full of making lunches. It's full of driving through traffic at 5 p.m. to get to cross-country events. It's full of butt-wiping. It's full of begging my children to stay in bed every night. As, as Jim Gaffigan says, putting kids to bed is like a hostage negotiation in reverse. Just stay in there. I'll give you anything. <laughs> right? That's what it's full of. And so, yes, it's the, oh, we're raising a family. Isn't this great? Look at the Instagram pictures. But the vast majority of it is mundane. It's block and tackle. It's, it, it doesn't feel purposeful in the moment. So many of you, like, you get, you know, those of you who have jobs, it's like, oh, this job was described to me as such and such. You'll be doing this. You'll be innovating. And it's like, oh, most of it is like I have gas and you know, I just am trying to get on board and get focused so I can think. There's a lot of mundane parts to the heroic work that you do or think that you're going to do. There's a lot of the present that doesn't feel very purposeful. Like as you go about your daily life, a few of us are animated by purpose. It's like you get these mountaintop experiences sometimes. Oh, God used, used me to like you know, share the gospel with someone or, 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 or do whatever. And it's like you're living for those moments. And, and we say, but how does, the, how does the ordinary every day of the present, how is that meaningful? When we look at verse 12 here, it says, a man named Ananias came to see me. This is Paul telling a story. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you. Ooh, this sounds like a big purpose. To know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what, you are waiting, now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Paul gets his purpose, right? God redeems him. That he, he's going to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to take the gospel across the whole world. I've been waiting so long to make this point. Right? I could have made it at any time, but this, this sermon felt really appropriate. Do you know what Paul does next? Like, because, oh yeah, missionary journeys. He goes on the missionary journeys, right? No. He waits 13 years. He goes and serves in obscurity for 13 years, waiting, learning. Even when he was on the missionary journeys, like we get the highlight reel in the book of Acts. Like there were travel days. A lot of the time he was just making and selling tents. You know, can, can, you, can you imagine? You're like, I was given this grand purpose by God. Gotta make a tent. Gotta make a tent. Make a tent is what I do so I can make. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Part, like, I, I don't think any of us would argue that Paul led a very purposeful existence, that he used the days that God gave him 
to great effect. But you know, there's a lot of the mundane present that goes with us, with it. But the, the thing is, is that when we, when our story is joined to God's story of redemption, it gives the present, even the boring parts, purpose. For Brother Lawrence, it was the realization that the doing of the dishes was as much part of his walk with God, it was as much part of this, this participating in monastic life as it was sitting in prayer. The boring parts of your life are part of the story of redemption. A necessary part, an integral part. Hey, we're planting a church that sounds so like, and we are, right? Like, like, like it's coming along. And, you know, when you say, oh, well, you know, people have gotten saved at the church, and right, it's growing like this and that, and it sounds so cool. But the reality of it is people show up early, make a pot of coffee. It doesn't feel very, like, exciting. You carry these tables that rip your hands off, and they're kind of falling apart. Listen, it's going to sound crazy, but it's true. That pot of coffee is part of the story of redemption. Carrying those back-breaking, hand-ripping tables is part of the story of redemption. Right? It, there is purpose in it. And, and, and I'm not just saying that the, the only purposeful thing we do is, is we participate in church. I'm just using it as an example. Parents. Fulfilling your calling and raising a child, when that child has rotavirus and it's your turn to change the diaper, that diaper is part of the story of redemption. Those of you who've done it know the smell. It, I've just triggered trauma for some of you. <laughs> All right? We don't live from one high to the next, but instead, when we can remember, when we can get over our gospel amnesia and say, actually, this story of redemption is still going, and I'm part of it? Well, this day of frustration is part of the story of redemption. This is part of what God is doing in the world. This day when I'm just laid up with a fever is part of the story of redemption, just as much as sharing the gospel. Now, if you're like, well, if that's true, then I'm going to live the story of redemption playing Halo all the time. No, <laughs> don't hear me say that. <laughs> it, it, it instead, it gives us reason to see meaning and purpose in the most mundane parts of our lives. When we join our story to God's, it transforms the meaning of our past. It gives our present purpose. But there, there's something else that's really crucial. Now, I'm going to bore the socks off of some of you. I'm sorry. You just have to deal with me. Love me as I am. Um, in the First World War, I lost some of you right there. In the First World War, there was a new, there was a new phenomenon that, that people had never really seen before that they called shell shock or battle fatigue. They didn't understand what was happening, is that guys who were soldiers who, who didn't have a wound were casualties. They were unable to function. Some of them would shake uncontrollably for days and days. Some of them would lose the ability to see or speak. Some would become totally catatonic, right? Like completely unresponsive, and some of them for the rest of their lives, even though they sustained no injury, and they were, they were really struggling to figure out what was going on. 
And they were, they were like, well, maybe it's the, the amount of shelling, the shell shock, right? Because there was a lot more shelling, was a lot more shelling in the First World War, and that was probably part of it. But the thing that they discovered is that the, the nature of battle in the First World War is that they didn't move for, for various reasons. But you'd have a two-month, three-month battle that never stopped, and it never moved, right? It wasn't like you were taking the field and like accomplishing your objective. For months and months, you're sitting there killing, dying, and suffering, and it goes nowhere. And it was that aspect, the fact that it went nowhere, that made people simply snap. They couldn't handle the fact that they were doing all this and accomplishing nothing. We're able to endure a great deal. But if there is no hope, if there is no sense that it's going somewhere, that, that the things that we have to endure actually accomplish something, we cannot survive that way. When we look at verse 17, we're going to see that as soon as Paul becomes a Christian, the difficulty and the suffering begin. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and, the Lord, and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know what I, that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So he says, your purpose is still, still on, but you're going to face persecution in this city. Right? Paul hadn't even really started his ministry yet. And this is a pattern that plays out through the book of Acts. Paul faces being stoned and left for dead. He is, he is imprisoned. He's beaten. He's rejected. He's slandered. He goes through a ton. This is what Paul says about all of that suffering in the book of Romans. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. He's talking about... God's story of redemption, he's saying the creation itself is going to be liberated from death and decay. And taking part in that makes the present suffering not worth comparing to the hope that's coming. God's story of redemption is what carried Paul through all of that suffering. And yes, Paul eventually went to martyrdom. When we join our story to God's story, it gives our future story hope. Failure is not final or fatal for you. The difficulties that you deal with in the present are not hopeless. And you may say, but I've had the same issue, the same sin pattern, the same physical malady, the same mental health malady for 20 years. No doubt. But I know 
of a certain situation where someone was dead and God brought them back to life. I know of a God who has promised to redeem, of all thi- to, to redeem all things. So whatever you go through now, whatever challenges, whatever difficulties, whatever suffering, it is not ending in failure for you. Your life does not end in death. There is something beyond it. The work of your hands, as frustrating as it is, because, hey, this is not how I thought my career was going to go. Guess what? It's not in vain. Suffering is not permanent. It ends in glory. The daily battles that you have to fight just to, just to get through your day are worth fighting. Why? Because there's hope. It does not end in futility. It does not end where you are now. When we join our story to God's story, it gives our future story hope. So God has a story of redemption, right? That is the big picture of the Bible. And, and, and you know, the, the big picture of Acts, and this has been a very meta-sermon on purpose, the big picture of Acts is that we're invited in to God's story. I don't know if anybody remembers, uh, when I was a kid, there was a movie called The NeverEnding Story. Anybody know the, you guys know the, no, oh, I'm so excited. So the Never Ending Story, for those of you who don't know, um, it's like, uh, how to describe it? It's one of those stories about stories, <laughs> very meta. And, uh, and it's this kid who like, you know, plays hooky from school and he goes to this antiquarian bookseller and the bookseller's this fusty old guy with a twinkle in his eye, you know, the type. And, uh, and, and he, he gets that this kid's really into reading and he's worthy of this one special book, The NeverEnding Story. And so he, he gives the kid this book and the kid goes to like a broom closet and he starts reading it and that, that's how the movie commences and the story's got, you know, all the usual things, dragons and heroes and princesses in need of rescue before we were woke. That's what princesses were. They needed to be rescued. And, and so he's reading it, and he's getting very engrossed in it, and at this really crucial point in the story, all the, the characters in the story start naming him and saying, hey, we need you. I forget what it was and why he had to do it, but it was a crisis, and he had to step in. Like There was, there was something he had to do, but they were calling him to become part of the story. That is the idea of the entirety of Scripture, and especially of the book of Acts, is that we are invited in to God's story of redemption. This is what God does every time we open the Scriptures. I could make this point any time preaching, is that this is God's story of redemption into which we are invited. Our lives are not stories about nothing. When our story becomes part of God's story, it transforms our past, it gives the present purpose, and it gives our future story hope. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that we would hear the call to enter your story of redemption, that you show us what part you want us to play, that you would show us in our daily lives how we are to participate in what you're doing in the world. I pray that you would give us a sense this week of walking in your story of redemption, that we would not buy the lie that the world is chaotic and hopeless, instead that is moving towards your redemption. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.